you have your Bibles, you can turn to Revelation chapter 20. Hola. I'm going to start, but go ahead. All right, well, I'm assuming um, as people show up, kids, if you need to depart when Sunday school teachers get here, that's fine, but I got to get started, and um, so let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to once again study your word to consider this important topic um, of end times, and though it's oftentimes confusing, challenging for us, we pray that you would give us clarity of thought, help us to um, just study your your word, um, and to give it its proper due, and um, to glorify you in the process. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, so we've talked about Amillennialism and postmillennialism. Um, so I'll give you some time to ask any questions if you have any from next from last the last few weeks. But I want to focus on premillennialism and at least get that part completed, and then we'll um, move on uh, to dispensational premillennialism. But premillennialism does have to be taught in two different sections because there's a pretty significant difference between historical premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. It gets um, quite a bit more complicated, and it goes beyond just eschatology when you're dealing with, with the differences between the two. So I do want to address them separately, and, and I think I mentioned it last week that premillennialism, this has been a historic position um, in the, throughout church history, but dispensationalism is, is brand new. That's uh, really developed by Schofield and Darby in the late 19th century is where that first began to be um, an approach to revelation. So the definition of historic premillennialism is just that Christ's second coming occurs before his earthly millennial reign. So you notice that's the biggest difference between all-mill and post-mill is that Premill puts the millennial reign after his return. So he returns, sets up his throne on earth, raises believers, lives with those believers reigning on earth for a thousand years, and then is the last judgment after that. Literal fashion, just time reading it straight from verses one through six. Um, and they view the the phrase that uh, believers uh, are those reigning with Christ are those risen believers. So they believe that the came to life passage or phrase in verse four. Then I saw the thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and 
and those who had not worshipped the beast and its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So that would be where the believers are resurrected, coming to life, and they take that in a very physical, bodily sense. Um, So it's a physical resurrection there for the believers in verse 4, and then in verse 5, the rest of the dead came to life after the thousand years were ended. Okay, Um, and that's the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So it's sort of a parenthesis there. It's it's a it's a difficult kind of um, text to just follow it along in a perfect timeline because it says the rest of the dead did not come to life. You really have to put um, parentheses there because then it says this is the first resurrection. So what they're saying is this is the first resurrection. This is the second resurrection, the resurrection of unbelievers after the thousand years. But um, so, so it kind of throws that in um, right before. Does that make sense? Read it with me because I want you to follow along and see where this gets a little confusing. I saw the thrones seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Now, just this immediately brings us to the first problem of this, this view because everywhere in Revelation, thrones are seen in heaven. All throughout Revelation, if, there's, if it's talking about a throne, it's a heavenly throne. So you're going to immediately think you're talking about heaven, but this view would say, no, now he's transitioned. He's thinking of the millennial reign on earth. So I saw the thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. So again, he sees the souls of them, but he hasn't seen their bodies raised yet because they're coming to life. So he saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life... Um, and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, one challenge to this, or another challenge to this view, is that it doesn't say anything about those who are still alive in Revelation 20. And most people who hold the historic premillennial view believe that those who are reigning with Christ are those who have been resurrected from the dead, as well as those who are still alive but have been transformed. So, they are all reigning with Christ for a thousand years, but Revelation 20 doesn't say anything about it. So one prominent scholar who takes this view, um, and his name is, I'm drawing a blank on the name, but he would say that the phrase, those who had, who, um, who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads, would be the reference to those believers who were still alive. But the verse doesn't make a distinction between those people and those who, the souls who had been beheaded, right? It's not, it's not making a, a clean distinction there. So they're kind of saying, well, John's just linking them all together. He's talking about the souls that have been beheaded and those who are still alive who didn't receive the mark, and now they're being transformed. They're, they're sort of trying to harmonize what they read in Second. Thessalonians or First Thessalonians, I can't remember which one, it, but what they read in Thessalonians and then what they read there in Revelation 20. But it's, it, either way, it does require a little bit of um, 
you know, of, of um, brought, drawing in other texts to understand it. Okay, so let me just give you the rest of the basic definition of, of their view. Or, or actually, that phrase came to life, which they would say is that physical resurrection. And both amillennialism and postmillennialism would say that that resurrection in Revelation 20 is not physical when it relates to the believers. It's saying that it, it has to do either with their coming to live in the millennial reign in heaven, right? As soon as you die, your soul goes to, to live with Christ. It, it is alive, and that's the literal reading of that word. In the Greek, it just means came to life. Um, postmillennialism would say, some of them say that that is how, how they read it, that they're coming to life in heaven. Others would say, no, they're, it's just speaking of their regeneration. But you notice, either way, they're not interpreting it as a physical resurrection in the same sense that Christ rose from the dead, right? They're talking about it either being regenerative, like your, your salvation, your conversion, or that you, <clears throat> that you are living in heaven and reigning with him there. Okay, so does that, does that make sense? They're not under, both of these views understand came to life in a figurative sense, not a physical resurrection. Premillennialists say, no, it's physical, okay? <clears throat> that is the strongest argue, argument, I think, for premillennialism because it just reads it in a, in a very natural sense. Um, but the challenge is, if, is, since there's no reference to believers being transformed here, all it's really talking about is the believers who have been raised from the dead. What happens to the people who went through the tribulation and were still alive who are being transformed? There's no, no reference to them. If you say that it had to do with the, that, that group that didn't receive the mark, then you're, you're making a distinction between them and the souls who'd been beheaded, which John doesn't do in this text. So it's clearly a... Um, kind of a maneuvering around what, the, what a natural reading of the text. All I'm trying to make the point is, although that is a, a strong argument in terms of the phrase came to life, it's, it's not consistent. You can't hold it consistently throughout that text, and especially when you get outside of Revelation 20. It, it's full of problems because there's simply no reference to a resurrection, uh, a separate re resurrection of believers from unbelievers. This would be the only text where you could try to make a case for it. And <clears throat> all right, so here's what I want to do is point out to you how came to life is used in other places of Scripture. So Luke chapter 15, Luke 15 verses 24 and 32 And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger. Wait, is that the right? No, I'm in 16, sorry. Luke 15, 24 through 32. We're talking about the prodigal son. And the father says, for this my son was dead and is alive again. 
Now, was the prodigal son ever physically dead? No. Spiritually dead, yes. So what he's saying is the exact same phrase for, for this came to life. It's saying that he was dead, but now he's alive again, right? He's, he's, and so it's a, very, it's a figurative use of the word. It's a figurative use of it in a spiritual sense, okay? So that would fit with either of the, the first two views. Um, so it's, it's, not a, it's not a unique use of the word to use it in the way that all millennialists and postmillennialists are arguing. You see it again in verse 32 of Luke 15. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So again, he was dead and now he's alive, but he was never physically dead. It was always just a spiritual sense. You also have it again in um, reference to the resurrection of the beast in Revelation chapter 13. Um, we've talked about this, I believe, in one of the sermons, but the idea that the, the dragon and the beast um, gather together to form sort of like a, an unholy counterfeit trinity. Um, you have the, the dragon, the beast, and the prophet, or the second beast. So there's the beast and the prophet, the, se- the second beast and the prophet are kind of the same thing. Um, but you have an unholy trinity in the, the, that combination. And then they also employ the, the harlot called Babylon. Okay, so I'm sorry if this is going to get a little confusing, but the idea is it's a counterfeit trinity. It's a false trinity. So in fact, one of the things that the beast does is fakes a resurrection, fakes a, a resurrection from the dead. And, and that's found in Revelation 13, 14. And we read, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Again, wounded by the sword and yet lived, that yet lived is the exact same phrase came to life, right? It's, it's, and, and since we're talking about a counterfeit resurrection, it can't be a physical resurrection in the same sense that put premillennialism wants to argue. So... Is, it's a proper reading of the word to say it was a physical, physical resurrection, but it, it doesn't require it to be read that way. That's what I'm trying to show. Does that make sense? Okay. It's, it's, I'm not arguing that what they're, the way they read it is, is completely out of question. It's, it's not. But it's not the only, which if you talk to a typical premillennialist, they would say it is. It's the only way to read that, ver- that word. But... That's just simply not true. Um, all right. So what occurs at the second coming under the premillennial view? Second coming is a single event, right? He, he only comes once, just like the other views, but it's in two stages because he comes, reigns, and then it's the, the judgment, whereas this is all one stage, Okay. When we get to dispensational premillennialism next week, we'll see that the return is divided into two stages, right? Because he raptures the church here, there's the tribulation, and then he comes finally down to earth to complete that reign. Yeah. Uh, There is. 
but it's it's now. It's it's now, right? It's figurative. Correct. This present age. This present age which would which would be between the first and second coming of Christ. That's the entire here. Now, that would be the amillennial view. Postmillennialism does have a little bit of of a mixture in terms of when the millennial reign begins. Some of them would say it, it, they're not sure if it's actually begun yet, but most of them don't hold to a literal thousand-year period, so they're not looking for, like, dates for when it begins and ends. Um, they don't believe it has to be that precise. They put, so remember, amillennialism puts it here. It's the three on the timeline. So amillennial, or we, we would say there's an escalation of it happening throughout ages, or not necessarily an escalation, but a recapitulation, which I'm going to talk about. I'm going to use that word a little bit today, so get used to it. Recapitulation just means repetition. It's just repeating itself, but it's not the full climactic version of the tribulation that you read about in, in some parts of Revelation. It's, it'll be like smaller threes throughout, and then you'll have a climax of evil at the end. Postmillennialism would say, no, that was the Great Tribulation already happened. It happened in 70 AD. Um, and there may be small threes throughout history, but, it, but that Great Tribulation that John is speaking of in Revelation has already occurred. Okay, so premillennialism obviously puts it at the end, uh, but, it's, but it is before his return. And that's the, that's the biggest difference with dispensational in terms of eschatology is they, that they want to put the return of Christ before the tribulation so that the church is raptured out. Okay, any other questions? So if I were to write another dispensational timeline, it would be like this. And I'll, I'll put this on the board next week. But you'd have the present age. Um, you'd have the return of Christ. You'd have three. You'd have the rest of the, you know, another return of Christ. Uh, resurrection. So the rest of this now is just like premillennialism. That makes sense? So what it does is it adds another return. This being a secret rapture, this being the visible, I mean, it wouldn't, they wouldn't necessarily say it's not visible. They say Christ returned, but he doesn't come all the way to the earth. He stays in the air. And, and he calls up um, those who are currently living and the, and the belief. Actually, I think, never mind, this, is, this part happens at the first, at the rapture. I'll be more precise on that next, next week, but I'm pretty sure that's how dispensational so the, the main difference there is that you have two, two stages for his, or not just two stages, but literally two returns.
which if you're familiar with anything outside of, actually, if you're familiar with the Bible in general, then you have a problem with that. <laughs> I mean, there's not, not even in Revelation is there a description of two returns. What, what you don't see how I'm saying two returns? No, this is only one return. The MR is the thousand years, millennial reign. So you have millennial reign here, millennial reign here. You have tribulation in between. Remember, this is the rapture. So only believers are raptured up and, and living believers are transformed. They're in heaven for the seven years of tribulation. And then Christ returns with all believers and at that point sets up his throne on earth and establishes the millennial reign. Yes. This historic pre-mill view, it was called heliasm. So, yeah, so you won't find it referenced as premillennialism until uh, well after the Reformation. I, I don't know when they started using that language. But it, it was called chiliasm, which is the Greek word for thousand years. Because they, they're the only ones that took it literally, as a, as a literal thousand year after Christ's return. Okay. Yeah. Yes. That's the one view that, that would say the tribulation is, is, they escape the tribulation. So, all right. Um, so the second coming, according to historic premillennialism, is a single event, but it's in two stages because it does separate the resurrection. Right, of believers and unbelievers and the, and the great white throne judgment. <clears throat> um, resurrection of dead believers with living believers are caught up to meet Christ in the air, then they fall or they descend with him and establish thrones alongside him. At that point, the Antichrist is defeated and the vast majority of Jews are saved. So again, Two, remember, is a reference to all Israel being saved, right here. And so they would say at that point, the vast majority are now seeing Christ for who he was. Right? Now they recognize he is the son of God, and they begin to worship him as God. Now, those are all transformed and enter into the millennial reign with Christ. Okay, and that the millennial reign begins. Jesus is 
Jesus with redeemed reign. So that's both resurrected, the believers who are resurrected are now on earth, and all Israel has been saved, and anyone who's been transformed that was still alive as believers. So all believers are together now with Christ reigning for a thousand years. And they're reigning over unbelieving nations. This also is a problem that I would see because the millennial reign involves still a significant degree of sin and death and and ultimately the need for ongoing judgment, which is why they would say in a literal sense that they're reigning. We're literally reigning with rods, right? We're, we're still exacting justice throughout the millennial reign. Okay, so their sin and death still exist. They would read Isaiah 65, 20 as, as revealing that, um, which, which does say very plainly that the dead uh, or that people will live to be a uh, hundred years old. The young man shall not, uh, shall die a hundred years old. So this is Isaiah 65, verse 20. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days for the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. So what they would say is the millennial reign is a very healthy time frame. There's not really, there's not this, this curse upon the earth. At least the effects of the fall are drastically reduced during that time, but they're still there. Death is still occurring, and infants are, are, but infants are no longer dying, right? They're, they're living the full thousand, the full, uh, well, up to a hundred or so. So this is, this is um, a very literal reading again of Isaiah 65, 20, which Isaiah 65, 17 says, this is the new heavens and new earth. It says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. So in my view, this is a figurative description of perfection. It's a figurative description of, of, of life continuing, of death not existing, although it is talking about dying, but it's, but it's, it's used in a figurative sense of saying, look, we're not going um, to see babies dying at young ages anymore. And there's, it's, again, just like is very common in prophetic, apocalyptic literature, it's symbolic. And so when you take it literally like this, you have problems because he's already talked about the, liter- the new heavens and new earth. Are you going to make that language figurative? Because if you read that literally, then you're saying that the new heavens and new earth has, has death and sin. And, and that would be completely, completely unorthodox, right? No one says that. Okay. Any, any questions about just that problem? So the sin and death still exist, but again, evil is greatly restrained. Okay, so you, they, would, they would interpret passages in Revelation as depicting evil being restrained by, um, by the, or during the millennial reign. Or like Revelation 2, verses 26 through 27 
the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. Again, they would read that as saying, see, there needs to be people who reign with, with broads during that time, and it's at the end. Um, so uh, they'd say again in chapter 12 and 19. So near the end of the millennium, they do acknowledge that Satan is released because Revelation 20 verse 7 very plainly says that. Near the end of the millennium, Satan is released for a final battle, the battle of Gog and Magog. Um, fire from heaven will consume Satan's army and Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. So that's kind of the final judgment. So Satan is bound during this millennial reign and then he's released from the abyss or from the pit that Revelation 20 speaks about uh, to gather together an army to battle against Christ and, and at that point, heaven wins. He's defeated and sent into the lake of fire. So after the millennium, resur- there's the resurrection of unbelievers to the judgment and the great white judgment takes place and then the final state begins with the new heavens and new earth. Right, that's the basic argument. So let me, let me bring up a few challenges or critiques to it. Revelation 20, 1 through 6, I've already mentioned a few of the, the problems, right? There's no mention of those being transformed who are living believers. So reading it in a straight literal sense, you you really only have the argument that resurrected believers could be reigning with Christ. The latter group's never mentioned. And to try to incorporate it into verse 5, you you have to separate it from the souls of believers who have been beheaded and the idea of the rest of the dead being raised in verse 5. So it's clearly talking about people who have died, not not those who have been transformed. Okay? Secondly, 1 Corinthians, let's, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 23 and 24. Actually, I'm going to read verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That's that same reference there. That's, that's the idea of those being resurrected. So also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. So they would say you have Christ being raised as the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, so that's believers, at his coming, being raised. Now, what we'd want to read at that point is then there's some gap. There's some gap between his coming and believers being raised and then a resurrection of unbelievers. But it says then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So... 
Ladd, and this, that's the name that I was trying to think of earlier. George Ladd is one of the more prominent modern interpreters that holds a historic premillennial view. He would say that there's three stages depicted in this passage. You have Christ's resurrection, and then you have a, a, a lengthy gap between Christ's return. So therefore, we should expect a lengthy gap again between his return and the end. Okay, So he adds a gap there, but obviously that gap is, is interpreted. I mean, he, he's inserting that gap where it's not necessary, but he's He's arguing that it, it just follows this, the order of the verse. Each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And he says, since there's the, a 2,000 plus year gap between his first and his second coming, or his first resurrection and the resurrection of believers, we should expect a lengthy gap again between that resurrection and the resurrection of unbelievers. However, the resurrection of unbelievers isn't mentioned in this passage at all. It just says, then the end will come when Christ delivers the kingdom um, to his Father. When, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Okay? So unbelievers are resurrected and Christ delivers the kingdom according to Lad. But again, Paul never mentions the millennial reign in that passage. There's no resurrection of unbelievers mentioned, so no lengthy gap is required. And then turn to John chapter 5 because... This is a very clear reference to a general resurrection. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So they, this is the only view that separates that resurrection. That would, put, that would make that into two events. But clearly, that's not seen in John 5, 28 and 29. And there's, there's other passages we could look to, but I'm just giving you, a, you know, the, some, some more convincing verses. A third problem I have with premillennialism is the idea that there's sin and death when believers have already entered into a state of glory. They've received their glorified bodies. They no longer themselves are hindered by sin or temptation, and yet they're surrounded by sin and temptation in that millennial reign. That's incompatible with, with every other section in Scripture, every other passage in Scripture that speaks of, of the end times. If you know, there's never a, a description of the, the one that they want to point to is Christ. They say after Christ's resurrection, he walked on earth for, for many days with his believers, right? And so you, you had someone in a glorified state who was among, who was in the midst of sin. Okay, so that's the one example. But outside of that, in descriptions about the eschatology or about the end times, there is no category for being glorified and yet still being surrounded by temptation. Okay, so believers presently enjoying a sinless, immediate state would, would technically enter back into a time of conflict where they're 
judging and bringing justice upon sin. You know, obviously they don't believe that they would be t- truly fall into that sin and temptation, but but they're dealing with it. They're having to be. They're gonna. They're having to conquer sin and temptation. So Christ's reign in glory is a time of qualified peace. And it's very. It's a glorious reign, but it's it's really qualified because it's not universal. There are still many who will reject him during that millennial reign. And, and when you read prophecies about that millennial reign, it's a time of, of peace, not conflict, um, which would make perfect sense, again, if it's related to the last, our final state, the new heavens and new earth. All right, so the presence of sin and death I don't believe is compatible with a state of glory for Christ and those reigning with him. And then the last thing I want to say, and then I'll have a few minutes here for questions, is that the millennial reign doesn't fit either this present age or the age to come. Whenever you read passages speak of this present age or the age to come, it's, it's in universal terms. It's speaking of sin and death being present, being fought against, where the church militant or were the church triumphant, right? We're in the, in the glorious reign of Christ. We're in that age where there is no sin and death. Millennial reign says, no, there's a third category. But again, it's, a, it's an interpretation that doesn't fit any text specifically. There's no, uh, no mention of a third age anywhere in Scripture, of an age that really doesn't fit with the present age, or the future age. Um, Isaiah 65, 17, as I mentioned, already indicates the picture of the new heavens and new earth. Um, Christ's return ushers in the new age. In Acts chapter 3, we read um, Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So this is obviously after Christ's resurrection. He's now in heaven and, and uh, Peter is speaking to, to everyone, this audience, and he's saying, we're waiting for his return to restore all things, right? It's, it's a very universal restoration that's spoken of there. He ushers in a, a new age that is radically different from this present age. It's, it's not a partial. It's not ushering them into a partial, partially perfected age. Uh, again, uh, Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 and 46, is, it speaks of um, the return of Christ it's, it's associated with the throne of judgment. Um, so let me show you that. Matthew chapter 25. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, clear reference to his second coming, then he will sit on his glorious throne. You think, okay, well, Everyone really believes that at Christ's return, he's going to have a throne, right? They believe that throne is, is we believe that throne is a throne of judgment. Premillennialists would say, well, he's going to sit on a throne 
and he's going to enact justice, but he's not really going to do a judgment until it's like a, a reign. He's reigning for a thousand years, and then he finally has a throne there, um, the great white judgment. Okay, but listen to what what he says in Matthew 25. So verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. You drop down to verse 46, and it says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Clearly, when he comes at that point, he's, he's judging. There's no gap. It doesn't, there's no reference to a, a thousand-year gap in Matthew 25. Um, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, Christ's return is immediately followed by judgment. Second uh, Peter, we'll close with this one. And then like, verse, if you have any questions, you can ask them. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and, when the he- and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all the things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening of the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to this promise, we are awaiting for a new heavens and a new earth which righteousness dwells. Again, very clearly, the return of Christ is associated with the establishing of the new heavens and new earth, not his return associated with a a, a reign, a millennial reign of a thousand years, finally to be followed by the new heavens and new earth. Okay? The return of Christ and judgment are immediately, you know, they're 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 happening in the same event, which is what amillennialism and postmillennialism present it as. Okay? We don't have time to look at, um, to go back to some of the other passages, but do you have any other questions about premillennialism? What I'd like to do is look at dispensationalism next week, and I'll probably spend two weeks on that, and then come back and wrap it up with, here's how we should read Revelation 20 rightly. And, um, and, if, and that's where I kind of will, it won't take that long to go through that, but it'll open it for your final questions about all the other views. Men. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, no, I take that literal. The narratives, I, I would say most biblical narrative should be read literally. It's, it, there's no, there's no reason to read it symbolically. It's clearly not poetry. It's not apocryphal. It's not prophetic. It's talking about it's, it's talking about history, what, what literally happened. So I would say, you know, there's, when I talk about reading scripture symbolically, it's, it's very unique. Like I'm, I rarely would argue for that. I haven't talked about, I haven't talked like that when we studied Genesis or Judges 
right? It's, it's because we're in a different genre. And, and that genre, I think, it's figurative. It, it's meant to be taken that way. And so I tried to prove that with the language um, and the allusions to Daniel uh, last week. Yeah, no, I, I would believe all three of these would be compatible with it, although, as I've pointed out here, the confession only allows for these two. The, because it, the, and the main reason I say that is because it does not separate, it, it only sees a general resurrection. It doesn't see two different resurrections. So that only fits with that. Dispensationalism has two resurrections just like No, dispensationalism would be the least compatible. Yeah. Historic premillennialism is still a pretty reputable view. It's, it's got a lot that, it, that, is, that is consistent with it. Um, and it, you know, it still sees believers going through the tribulation. It still sees Christ's return as one event. Um, the biggest problem with it is it sees... A, sees no longer a general resurrection, but two, two separate resurrections. So, was there another hand or question? Okay. Um, I would say, like, there are people who would say they're reformed and dispensational. And the biggest example of that is John MacArthur. Um, but um, it's extremely rare to hold that. Um, he's not. He would call himself a leaky dispensationalist, is what he says. Um, or other people have called themselves like progressive dispensationalists, which I'm not sure. I think that's the, the term like Daryl Bach has used. So a lot of guys coming out of Dallas are now finding that they don't hold to a, a his, like the historical dispensational view. They they've made a lot of adjustments so much that it that it needs to be categorized in that way, like a progressive way or a leaky <laughs> dispensational view. Um, so it's not incompatible with like a like a Calvinistic understanding of say of salvation but it is incompatible with the confessions of faith. All right, we got to wrap it up. Let me, let me pray, and then um, we got some time to fellowship. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this time. It, um, it is a, a heavy topic, I know, and it challenges our minds, especially this early in the morning, to, to think and grasp all of this that's being taught, but I pray that you would help us to have clarity and not confusion. Um, that we would be gracious to those who differ from us, but also consistently really focusing on um, the truth of your word and wanting to have a better grasp of that truth and how it applies to us today. May it strengthen our faith, may it give us hope, and even um, give us an assurance of your victory. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. All right, thank you guys.